So we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 here tonight and looking at verses 3 through 16. And um, <clears throat> title of the message is Spiritual Gifts, Let Us Use Them. And that is indeed Paul's exhortation here um, to the church in Rome in this portion of his letter. And I just want to remind us tonight as we jump into this um, and consider this portion of Paul's letter. You know, Paul wrote this letter around 57 A.D., um, the letter, this letter of Paul's is unique in that it is a letter that he uh, written to a church he didn't plant. Um, I believe Colossians is the only other letter that's like that. So Paul had never uh, seen these people. Um, he knew perhaps a few of them, but other than that, he really had no personal relationship with most of them. And I think it just helps to keep that in mind as we think about the instruction he's given. You know, he's giving these things because it's important information he wants them to know, and he, and he has the boldness to pass on to them, even though he had never met most of them personally. Um, so he doesn't hold back in his exhortation that we're going to consider here tonight. As believers, you know, we have the privilege of serving a great king, right? And, and that's kind of ver the first part of Romans 12 kind of talks about um, the, who, the, who the Lord is. And really the whole letter, right, Paul um, has started out with the book of Romans, um, going through and taking them and us through the fact of how we were lost in our sin and we were dead and then he brings the message of the gospel of salvation that has come through Christ. And so by this point in the book of Romans, uh, Paul has already detailed just this wonderful salvation and what God has done for us. And it's in light of that that Paul talks about the things he talks about here in chapter 12. Um, and so as believers, like I said, we have the privilege of serving a great king, a king who has shown us mercy, right, by taking us from death to life. In verse 1, Paul said, presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice was our reasonable service. And that word reasonable means pertaining to being carefully thought through or thoughtful. And so we are called to think about who's calling us to this kind of life and what he has done for us. And um, I posed this question um, earlier this year. I taught the first couple verses here in Romans 12. And, you know, the question, again, I just want to pose to us tonight is, is it unreasonable for God to expect us to serve him? And I think, obviously, um, the answer, of course, is no. I was thinking of that song that we were singing there tonight, Alabaster Heart. You know, it talks about, you know, the least basically we could do is bring a lifetime of worship to our king. I mean, in light of what he's done for us. Um, and how could we not bring a lifetime of worship to the king is what, he, is what the song declares. And I think the answer is, Yes, <laughs> how could we not do that? And so one of the ways I think we get to bring a lifetime of worship is walking in the gifts that God's given to us in our lives, exercising those gifts. And so tonight, we're going to look, as I said, at the exhortation that Paul gives to use our spiritual gifts. The exhortation to use them is based on the fact that it's reasonable for us to serve with God. And in order for us to serve him, we must use the spiritual gifts he gave us. And so I'm going to start out here by reading verses 3 through 8. He says, For I say through, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, 
but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry, in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so as Paul begins to talk here about spiritual gifts, we see there in verse three, he talks about a sober evaluation. He lets them know that he's walking here within his own gifting, because he says, for I say through the grace given to me, right? So Paul is saying it's through the grace of God, through the gifting of God that I am writing to you, that I am exercising my spiritual gift and teaching you and writing this letter. And it's only because of that gifting that he's doing what he's doing. And I think he wanted to communicate that to them. That word there through, um, that he uses there in verse three says, for I say through the grace, that word is a marker of instrumentality or circumstance whereby something is accomplished or affected by via through. So Paul is saying it's because of, it's by the grace of God that I am doing what I'm doing, that I'm able to minister to you. And I love that. I love that he's sharing, you know, that this, as he should, from a humble place and acknowledging that it is the Lord, is the grace of the Lord who's at work in and through his life. And then he begins there in verse three with really a warning to not think more highly of yourself than you should, but instead to think soberly. And that word soberly means to be prudent with a focus on self-control, be reasonable, sensible, serious, keep one's head. And, and so I think he's trying to convey this um, mindset of having a right assessment of yourself and what God has given to you and what God's called you to do. And I think this is serious and an important warning to keep in mind as we consider spiritual gifts. I mean, I think he's conveying there needs to be a reasonable humility as we use our gifts and as we seek to step out into them. One of the ways I think thinking highly of ourselves can be seen is thinking less of those with other gifts. And we'll kind of talk, come back to that in a moment when we get into the analogy of, a bo- of the body that Paul uses in verse four and five. But one way in which pride can come across is us, as we walk in our gift, having a, a, a despising attitude toward the gifts of others and, and the gifts that they're called to walk in. And so we have to guard against that. We have to be sober-minded, right? Have a reasonable assessment of ourselves that, I have this gift only because God's given it to me. It's what he's given me to walk in, just as he's given my brother or my sister their gift to walk in. Not only, I think, is there a danger of us thinking too highly of ourselves, but I think there's also a danger of us thinking too little of God's work and calling in our lives and kind of having a false humility about ourselves. And uh, walking in this way can can come out in several ways. You know, it can come out with a mindset of thinking, well, I'm not worthy to be used by the Lord. And so I'm not going to walk in my gift because I don't see myself as worthy. Or by another way, I think this can just have a a false humility. And again, not the right sober mindedness is saying, uh, having again, a comparison of myself to others and diminishing the gift that God has given 
uh, in my eyes, <laughs> diminishing the gift that God has given to me and saying to ourselves that our gift is not important, so it really doesn't matter if I use it, right? We can have that mindset that no one's gonna miss if I don't serve. No one's gonna miss if I don't step out because my gift is not that important. And the danger of this false humility is that it will cause us to not walk in the gifting God's given to us. Or at the very least, it will cause us to struggle with consistency and walking in it. And so I just think it's important, as Paul starts out here again, that we have a sober assessment of ourselves, right? Not think too highly, but also not think too lowly, and not think that God can't use us or that our gift isn't valuable. And, you know, I think Timothy probably struggled a little bit and somewhat with this himself. And this is why Paul says to him in 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And so Paul's exhortation to Timothy is step out there, Timothy. Don't have, look at yourself and not be willing to step out, even though you're young, step out, do what God's called you to do. Use the gift that God has given to you. And then in 2 Timothy 1.6, there Paul says, therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. And so an exhortation to stir up the gift and, um, and kind of keep that in mind. We'll come back to that um, later on in some things that Paul says here in Romans chapter 12. But I think uh, perhaps Timothy was struggling with maybe wanting to draw back. You know, maybe it was fear. Maybe it was, again, having the wrong assessment of his gift and his abilities that God had given him. He was falling to the temptation of just wanting to step back. And, God, and Paul's reminding him, Timothy, stir the gift up. Step out there. Let the Lord use you. I know that God's gifted you, and um, I want to encourage you to step out. And I think, just a little side note there for us, I think it's important that we look out for those in the body of the Christ that, are, we, that we do see maybe falling prey to that, stepping back and being intimidated and that we put our arm around them and we encourage them, come on, stir up the gift. Let God use you and encourage those around us to be used by the Lord. We have to, of course, lead by example, but we also need to um, sometimes just come and say and encourage them to step out and to stir up the gift. I want to just read a, a quote from a commentary from Warren Wiersbe uh, about an, two individuals that I think picture um, what I'm describing here. He says, I once ministered with two men who had opposite attitudes toward their gifts. The one man constantly belittled his gifts and would not use them. And the other man constantly boasted about the gifts that he did not possess. Actually, both of them were guilty of pride because both of them refused to acknowledge God's grace and let him have the glory. Moses made a similar mistake when God called him, and that's in Exodus 4, 1 through 13. I mean, there you see the struggle. Moses talking about, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. He goes on to say here, it says, when the individual believers in a church know their gifts, accept them by faith, and use them for God's glory, then God can bless in a wonderful way. And so um, that is my hope and that we can be encouraged tonight to do just that, to know our gifts, accept them by faith, and use them for God's glory so that God can continue to work through us as a church. 
So that brings us to verses four and five, where Paul uses the analogy of a body, of a human body. He turns to that to help us understand the importance of each person's place in their spiritual gift. And I want to turn over and read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 22, because there Paul picks up the same analogy as he's writing to the Corinthians. And he says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Um, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. So again, the analogy of the body, and that's what he turns to in Romans 12 here as well in verses four and five, is that just as our physical bodies have many parts to them, so the body of Christ has many parts to it. And there is no part, just as there is no part of our body where we can say, well, I don't need that. So the same is of the body of Christ, where we, no one can say, well, we don't need that part of the body of Christ. We don't have the right to say it. And it's really foolish to say it because you just wouldn't say that about your own body, right? There isn't one part of your body that would say to the other part of it, I don't need you, leave, get out of here. And that's just not... It's illogical, right? And I think that's why Paul is using this analogy of the body to help us to understand just how important each part is and that each part has a different function and yet the parts together make up the whole, the whole body of Christ with every part being necessary. And, you know, we're referred to as the body of Christ no less than six times in the New Testament. So this isn't something, um, you know, small or little. <laughs> I mean, this is something, a reference that God has designated for us as his church, that we are the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of this body, and each of us make up a part of this body. And so the importance of this analogy, I think, is to show how closely connected and dependent we are to each other. I mean, we're very closely connected and dependent upon one another. And we need to remember that and we need to keep it in mind. There again, I'm going to go back to Romans 12, 4 and 5 and read that. For we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so while there is that individuality, right, we're individuals, but as individuals, we make up the whole, the whole body of Christ. And I think one of the challenges probably for us, um, as maybe I don't know whether it's just Western Christians, but I think it definitely is for Western Christians, is we tend to, tend to think of our faith too often as individualistic terms, right? It's about my salvation, my walk with the Lord. 
and we focus too much perhaps, I think, on ourselves at times. And the point that Paul's getting across to us here is, is that we are individuals, yes, but we're a part of something much greater and bigger than ourselves. We're a part of the body of Christ, and we play an important role, an important uh, part in that body. So verse six, uh, the first half of verse six now, gifts according to grace in verse six a, having then gifts differing according to grace that is given to us. So Paul starts here with a statement of fact. He says, having then gifts. He doesn't try to make an argument for all believers having a gift. He simply just states it as a fact. And I think when you stop and think about it, it makes sense that this is true that every believer has a gift. 2 Timothy 1.9, there in, in Paul says, speaking of Christ, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And that word calling there is a Greek word, which means invitation to experience of special privilege and responsibility, call calling invitation. And so the calling, we've been called to a privilege and a responsibility, right? And he says they're a holy calling, describing the type of calling that it is. And as you probably know, holy means set apart. And so what Paul's saying there to Timothy is that we are set apart to responsibility in God's work. And so therefore, since that is the case, we have a holy calling set apart to, to a responsibility, it would only make sense that in order for us to fulfill that responsibility, that we have to have a spiritual gift that God's given to us to use. Because without the spiritual gifts, there's no way we could fulfill the holy calling that God has on our lives. There would be impossibility. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and verse 11 uh, says this about the fact of every believer having a gift. It says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. In verse 11, but one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And so again, there in Corinthians, Paul's telling us and making it clear that everyone has a gift. Everyone has been given a gift. And I would say, because we need it to fulfill the holy calling that God has on our life is why he's given us these gifts. Now back to verse six here in Romans chapter 12, he, said, he uses the word differing there, having then gifts differing. And that word means pertains to being different with focus on distinctiveness or different. And there is a distinctive, distinctiveness to our spiritual gifting. And, um, and I think um, it depends on, on many things the distinctiveness does. I mean, God doesn't uh, separate from us our personality when he saves us, right? I mean, all the things that make us up are still there. And hopefully, uh, rightly, the, the, the bad things that were there before salvation, the Lord is removed and the Lord's dealing with but we still have a personality that we have, right? That God's given to us. So that brings some distinctiveness, the style in which a person would exercise the gift that God's given is gonna vary, it's gonna be distinct, it's gonna be different. And I think there's also distinctiveness is depending upon where God wants the gift to be used. And you know, think of our church here. Um, you think we could th think of several examples, but one I wanna point out is the gift of teaching. 
Well, that's distinctive in how it's used. And Pastor Troy has the gift of teaching and he stands up in front of the congregation and he teaches week after week. But many of the, of the rest of us that have the gift of teaching, that's used in various ways, whether it be in children's ministry, whether it be in a small group, men's ministry, women's ministry, or at the nursing home, or at the jail ministry, or Good News Club. There's so many different ways the gift of teaching is used, and it's distinctive. And so it's important to recognize, and that's why Paul points this out here, is that there is differing according to the grace. So there's distinctiveness to our gifting. It will look perhaps different based upon the person and the role that God has for them. But the point is, is that each of us have a gift and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it looks a little different from one person to another. And I just have to say this one of the things I really appreciate, you know, about uh, Calvary Chapel is that if you, I've had the privilege of going to several conferences over the years and hearing different Calvary Chapel chapel pastors teach, or we get the privilege of hearing them on Equip FM, right? But they all have a different style. There's a distinctiveness and a difference to their style of teaching. It's the gift of teaching, but it looks and sounds different in each one of them because each of them are different people. And so that's okay, right? That's okay that there's distinctiveness and that's the way God designed it. And I think it's even as we were talking earlier about thinking soberly of ourselves, we need to be okay with the fact this is who we are and our gift isn't gonna look exactly like it would look in somebody else's life and that's fine. It doesn't, it, do, it doesn't matter as long as we're walking in the gift that God's given us, as long as we're exercising it. In Ephesians 4, 7, um, Paul kind of repeats something that he's saying here in verse 6. He says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so just as he says here in verse six, back in Romans 12, according to the grace. And this is something I just wanna again emphasize. Paul alluded to it earlier in verse three about himself. But spiritual gifts are a grace of God upon our lives. Just as God showed us grace in saving us, he's also shown us grace in gifting us with gifts to use for his glory. And it's his grace at work. It's his favor upon us and allowing us to serve him. Uh, one commentator says of this, whatever gift we have, we must use it. And the motive of use must, not, uh, must be not our personal prestige, but the conviction that it is one and the same time our duty and our privilege to make our own contribution to the common good. And so recognizing it, this is a grace of God, and therefore I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to the Lord to use this grace. And you know, one of the things I keep um, mulling over in my mind and thinking about, and it's I think connected to this, is just uh, this precious gift that God's given us in saving us. I mean, he's given us this very valuable, precious gift, our salvation, and the question now, after being saved, is what are we going to do with that precious gift of salvation that God's given to us? Are we going to carefully handle it and carefully um, live out our lives in a way that honors him? Or are we going to not be careful at all? Are we going to be uh, disregarded and not take it seriously? And one of the ways, I think, in which we have the opportunity to carefully treasure this gift of salvation. Again, I'm not saying earn my salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us um, giving honor to the Lord for what he's done for us and saving us. 
and gifting us is now we get to use the gift or gifts that he's given to serve him and to worship him. And so um, that leads us in here to uh, seven spiritual gifts that Paul talks about here from the last half of verse six through verse eight here in Romans chapter 12. And uh, let me pick it up there in the middle of verse six. He says, uh, to the grace that, has, that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry, let us use it in our ministering he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, and he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so six, um, seven spiritual gifts Paul gives. Um, and this is not all the spiritual gifts, but these are the spiritual gifts that the Spirit of God led Paul to talk about here in Romans chapter 12. And I want to remind us as we begin to talk about these that these are not talents, Okay, it's not a talent that we're talking about. We're born with talents that God gives us at birth, but we're not born with spiritual gifts when we're born into this world. When we're born again, we get spiritual gifts. When we're baptized into the family of God, we get spiritual gifts. So we're not talking about talents, just abilities that we had before salvation. We're talking about spiritual gifts given to us by the Spirit of God to enable us to do the ministry that God has called us to do. And the first one Paul mentions here is the gift of prophecy. Now, in the New Testament, um, this is mostly understood as the gift of expounding scripture or of speaking and preaching under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Um, prophecy does have, and I'm not, I'm not at all saying that Paul isn't also alluding to this aspect of prophecy, uh, but prophecy can be a foretelling of the future, certainly. That can be an aspect of prophecy, but it doesn't seem that it's the primary usage of prophecy in the New Testament. The prophecy of, in the New Testament is mostly speaking forth the heart and mind of God. And I want to read a couple of references to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 5, Paul talks about prophecy. He says, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Then he goes on to say in verse five, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. And later on in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31, he says, for you can all uh, you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And so I think we see some important things from Paul's description of prophecy here in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, and we see things about prophecy that it edifies, right? So it builds up, it exhorts, it comforts, it teaches, and it encourages. And that is what I think Paul is primarily referring to when he's speaking of prophecy here. It is the foretelling uh, foretelling of God's heart and mind using scripture. It's the right application of God's word for a moment, or a word from the Lord where the Lord wants to remind his church, I've said this, and, and it's spoken forth, and it brings encouragement, it brings comfort, it brings exhortation to the body of Christ. Um, so Paul says, in, in regards to this gift, to use it in proportion to faith. Now, um, hold on, I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can understand it. Um, this, 
in our English translations of the Bible, there in uh, verse 6, when it says prophesy in proportion to our faith, I think in some translations it'll say his faith before, it'll say his before faith or his or our, it says. Well, the English translations of our Bible has, have supplied that understanding. The his or our are not in the original Greek. And I just want to read a couple quotes as I try to explain this here and just kind of what I really feel and I think is um, what Paul's trying to communicate here. The Greek text is much more abrupt than any English translation, this writer says. Let him is supplied for smoother English. One's prophesying is to be done in proportion to his faith. A better translation would be an agreement to the, to the faith. That is prophesying, communicating God's message to strengthen, encourage, and comfort is to be in right relationship to the body of truth already revealed. And another one says, the claim that Paul refers to the prophet's own measure of faith is answered the moment we see that no prophet is mentioned, but only prophecy. Now, prophecy is objective. The contents of what one may prophesy and it is plain that the controlling norm for this cannot be something subjective, the prophet's own trust. But in the very nature of the case must also be something objective, the faith or doctrine once delivered to the saints. And so I would think Paul is communicating here his exhortation to prophesy, but it, when you do so, it should be in agreement with the once for all word of God that it has been delivered to us. Um, it's not so much how much faith you have to speak, it's is that what you're saying, does it line up with the word of God? Is it in agreement with what God's word has already declared? Because I will say one more thing before I go on about prophecy is we do not believe, and, I, and scripture does not teach, that someone's going to be given something that's going to add to or change what God has already given to us. We have the complete revelation here before us. We have all that we need. So prophecy is not going to contradict what God has already told us. It's not going to change what God has said. Um, and so I think that's why in John, 1 John 4, 1, there John warns, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so how are we going to test the spirits? We're going to test them by the word of God, right? And so if it contradicts God's word, then we're gonna dismiss what that person has to say because that person is a false prophet if they're contradicting what God has declared to us. So I hope that makes sense. If you have questions about it afterward, I'd be glad to talk with you and uh, try to um, maybe do a better job of explaining it. But uh, from several things I read, it seems to me that does make the most sense in what Paul is saying here um, in regards to prophecy. He goes on to say, uh, about, talk about ministry. And ministry often has the connotation of service rendered to benefit and to help others. This being the only motive, all compulsion being absent. So the original use of this word was connected to waiting on tables. And that in the original Greek, this word was used for those that wait on tables. And that's what this word, where this word ministry came from. And the verb form is used in Mark 10.45 to describe the life of Jesus. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the person who has the gift of ministry has a servant heart. He sees opportunities to be of service and seizes them. 
It's a very, this gift of ministry um, is a very practical gift, is serving people in practical ways, meeting needs, needs that need to be met. And so it's just being a servant. That's what that word ministry means there. The next one he gives us is, the, is teaching, which is simply to instruct, uh, instruct God's people from God's word is what teaching is. And um, Nehemiah 8.8, 8, I think, gives us an Old Testament example of this, where there it says, so they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And so there we see they were teaching the people. They were using the word of God to teach the people, to help them have understanding and help them uh, to read it to them and help them understand what God was saying. So the spiritual gift of teaching will help the hearers have understanding and help them have application, I think, of God's word to their life. It's not just passing on knowledge to people. It's gonna help bring about application and help people apply the word of God to their life. Um, that's certainly what teaching in, in the context of a spiritual gift is and should be, right? It's just not about passing on knowledge to people, right? Because if all we're doing is just passing on knowledge, we're really failing, right? It needs to also include the application, applying God's word. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where change happens because God's word is being applied to our, to our everyday life. The next gift he gives there is uh, the gift of exhortation. And this gift, it, the word means to urge strongly, appeal to, urge, uh, exhort, encourage, able to instill someone with courage or cheer, comfort or cheer up. And so um, that's what that word means. And the church obviously needs the gift of exhortation. People need to be encouraged and uh, comforted and cheered uh, through this gift. And it's a gift that God has given and wants us to use. Uh, the next gift, um, well, actually, before I mention that, this brings us to the last three gifts. And the difference here is that Paul adds a qualifier to each of these. And before I even go on to that, I just want to say, too, those gifts we just read um, talked about, the gift of um, prophecy, the gift of ministry, and the gift of teaching, um, the exhortation is over and over is let us use it, Paul says, with all of those, let us use it. He's like, he's like urging them on, urging us on, get out there, use it, let us use it. And I love too, again, there, the humility of Paul. Paul's including himself in that. He's, he's reminding himself, Paul, you do this, you use the gift that God, the gift and gifts that God has given to you. And so the exhortation, that's where the title of my message comes from is spiritual gifts, let us use them. And that's the exhortation there is let us use them. And this is what it's all about. It's about the using of them, not letting them sit idly by, but use them. And that brings us again now to these um, last three gifts that Paul mentions. And as I mentioned a moment ago, all of these have a qualifier to them. And so um, the first one there is, is giving. Um, he who gives, it says, with liberality. And so gives is, means to give a portion, in part, give away. Um, and to that exhortation to give, Paul adds the word with liberality. And that word means of simple goodness, which gives itself without reserve, without strings attached, without hidden agendas. And so um, I'll just say there's a little bit of nuance on the translation of that word. Um, this is seeming to be what most people prefer is the tr uh, definition I just gave you, whereas there's this connection of um, no hidden agenda. 
you know, no strings attached, more than the idea of the amount of giving. It's more so what's the heart behind the giving, I think, is what's being conveyed. Um, and that reminded me of a couple things in Jesus's ministry. Um, and, and one was the widow's might in Mark 12, 42 through 43, you know, where she was only able to give a little. And so it wasn't about the amount for her, it was about the heart. She was trusting the Lord, whereas others, they were giving, they were giving a lot, but it was to draw attention to themselves is why they were giving. And so I think the idea of, of giving here is to do it in such a way that it's not seeking to, to draw attention to yourself. And, you know, Ananias um, in, the, in the book of Acts, you know, they gave and said, we were giving this much and just they try to get a pat on the back and right, they, got, they dropped dead because they were lying. They were conveying something that wasn't true. Um, Jesus warned in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do your charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And so, <clears throat> obviously, I'm not saying that scripture doesn't teach us to be generous, there should be generosity in our giving, but I think there also should be, you know, the right heart and the right motive behind the giving. And this is not just talking also, when we're speaking of giving here, it's not just a financial giving. It's a, it's also includes giving of yourself, of your time, of, uh, of the knowledge that the Lord has given to you and ministering to others, discipling others. That's a way in which we can give. So it's not just about financial giving that the gift of giving uh, uh, involves. So the next one here is the one, is the word, is the leadership gift. He says, he who leads with diligence. And that word lead has two possible meanings. To exercise a position, well, first is to exercise a position of leadership, to rule, direct, be at the head of. And the second is to have an interest in, show concern for, care for, give aid. A leader in the world would be defined by the first definition, right? Just a, a person has nothing to do with the Lord. Definition one would be perfectly, probably the correct definition but not necessarily the second, right? Not all leaders, and in fact, most leaders don't usually have an interest in those they're leading. Um, but a leader in the church uh, should have both of these. There is a role of leading, of being out front, of directing, but a leader in the church must also have an interest in, in and show concern for and care for the people that they are leading. And Jesus modeled that type of leadership, right? And believers must do the same, is what we're called to. And I just have to say, like, don't follow ever anybody who doesn't ever show any concern for you and for those around them. That's somebody to stay far away from because they're in it for the wrong motivation. Um, so a leader in the body of Christ should be one who's showing concern for others. It's not all about them. And this too, again, is one of those gifts where it's going <clears> to <throat> have distinctiveness, right? 
It's going to be carried out in different ways. There's all kinds of different ways in which there's leadership and different levels of leadership in the church. Um, and so, but Paul adds to this word, to uh, the gift of leading, he adds the word diligence. And he says, and that word there means earnest commitment and discharge of an obligation or experience of relationship. Eagerness, earnestness, diligence, willingness, zeal. And so in leading and walking in the gift of leading in the body of Christ, Paul is saying there should be a, a diligence, a zeal, an eagerness to leading, not being lazy in leading, not being the, the, the chief uh, uh, one sitting around, but you're going to have zeal and you're leading. You're going to be active and involved and there's going to be diligence in your leading. You're going to take care to the responsibility. Then he goes on. The next one is mercy, which is, of course, simply to have compassion. And I think one of the things that come to mind with this gift is when mercy is needed is when um, you know, many ways in which mercy can be showed in the body of Christ. But one of the ones that came to my mind was in having mercy when someone falls. And Galatians 6.1, there it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. And that is an important way in which mercy can be shown in the body of Christ is when someone falls into sin, is that we should have compassion on them and we call them back to the Lord. You know, that it's not um, time to beat up on the person. It's time to show compassion and call them back to the truth and to the love of the Lord. And Paul adds the qualifier there to mercy of cheerfulness. And that is a quality or state of cheerfulness, opposite of, of an attitude suggesting being under duress, cheerfulness, gladness, wholeheartedness, graciousness. And I think this is a reminder that the gift Paul's talking about here is a supernatural gift, mercy with cheerfulness. And the word of God declares about the Lord is that he delights in showing mercy to us, right? But for us, we need the power of the spirit of God upon us to show mercy and to do it with cheerfulness, right? That have cheerfulness tied to it. But that is the qualifier that the Spirit of God led Paul to add to the gift of mercy, that it be done with cheerfulness. And I think that helps a person to receive the mercy, right? If you give mercy with the wrong attitude, it's not going to be received as mercy. It's going to be received as judgment. It's going to be received as something harsh. But if it's done with cheerfulness, then it's going to be received as it's intended, as something of having compassion upon them. And now that brings us to nine, verses 9 through 16 as we uh, begin to head to the end here. And um, key, these verses, I think, are keys to being fruitful in our gifts. Um, in verses 9 and 10, and I'll just read those, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another. And so verses 9 and 10, I think the exhortation is to operate in love. These verses are more about the use of our gifts in relationship to each other. Um, I think in the context here, as Paul's just uh, listed and talking about spiritual gifts, He's wanting to make sure that we remember that the gifts are, are in operation and they're in operation with love at the center of, of their being carried out. And um, so 
he first of all talks there in verse nine about a genuine love. He says, let it be without hypocrisy. I think to be fruitful in the gifts that God has given, we must exercise them in love. And otherwise we must, we'll just be making a lot of noise, right? And Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse one. So it's just a lot of noise if there's no love in, at the center of it. And so it has to be genuine and love has to be there. They can't be fake. Um, Love that come, it has to be love that's coming from a heart that's being transformed by the Lord. Now, I was thinking this, we live in the South, so I guess I can mention this to us. You know, it's not the kind of love that says, uh, bless your heart, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's not genuine love, right? That, that we know in the South is mean, it means, doesn't mean it at all what it sounds like it may be meant. Um, so, but this is a love that's genuine, a love that really is, from the heart and uh, from a heart that's been transformed by the, by the Lord, a genuine love, a sincere love. And he tacks onto that uh, two statements. He says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And these two words are very strong words. That word abhor means to have a vehement dislike for something, hate strongly, abhor. And the word cling means to join closely together, bind closely, unite. Another way, definition of that word cling is glue. And so um, I think the exhortation that Paul has given to us here as believers is don't walk the line trying to see how close you can be to the world. Be separate from the world. If we're going to walk in our gifts and affect, be effective in our gifts, we have to abhor what's evil and we have to cling to what is good. Otherwise, what will happen is what we're warned against in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, where Paul says, do not quench the spirit. And Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so that's why these exhortations are so important. Because if we are not walking in separation from the world, if we're not abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, then we're going to quench the spirit of God in our lives and we're not going to be effective and useful in our gifts and, and be effective for the Lord. And so there's a genuine love Paul talks about there in verse 9. And in verse 10, I think it's a family love that Paul's referring to. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. And so Paul here is describing, like I said, a, 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 a familial love. It's Kindly affectionate and brotherly love are both communicating that. They're kind of really saying the same thing. And we do this, I think, by seeking to value each other as, as the body of Christ and as brothers and sisters. Giving preference means to try to outdo one another in showing respect. And so Paul's like calling us there to a competition. <laughs> try to outdo each other in showing value and respect to one another. And if that's happening in the body of Christ, then the body of Christ is going to be in a good place if we're seeking to outdo each other and showing value and love to one another. And really, that should be the only competition that's in the body of Christ, is that competition, seeking to be the best at valuing one another. And that brings us to verses 11, 12. And um, I titled these, Serving the Lord. You know, Paul reminds us in verse 11 that this is about serving the Lord. He says there, not, in verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And it's kind of 
tying us back to what he already said in the first couple verses of Romans 12, reminding us this is all about being a living sacrifice to God. That, that's what I'm speaking of here, and I want to remind you it's about serving the Lord. And so he gave the gifts to us so that we can serve him by serving others. And Paul here gives us some, uh, like some, uh, under, a better understanding of how this service should look like. He says, not lagging in diligence. And so that word lagging means possessing a state of involving, uh, shrinking from something, holding back, hesitation, reluctance, idle, lazy. That's what that word is conveying. And so <clears throat> we don't want to be found, what Paul is saying here, shrinking back or hesitant in what God's called us to do and the gifts that God's called us to walk in. And we instead want to be diligent, which if you remember from earlier, it's the same word that he used earlier in these verses. It has a definition of meaning eagerness or willingness. And so we as believers in serving the Lord, we don't want to be found shrinking back. And it's a temptation I think we all have to fight because it's not easy to serve the Lord, right? And, it, and many times you're battling a lot of different things in trying to serve the Lord. You're battling your flesh that doesn't want to serve the Lord. You're battling, you have spiritual warfare going on where the enemy's trying to cast doubts into your mind about like, what are you doing? What? You shouldn't be doing this. Why, what do you have that you can offer to somebody? And things like that, we're battling that. And so the temptation is, is like, you're right, I'm just gonna shrink back. It's much easier not to do anything. But the exhortation is if we're going to serve the Lord, we have to fight that. We have to not shrink back, but press on and be eager in our desire to serve. And that's why he says fervent in spirit. Instead, be stirred up with a fire in your service to the Lord. And at the end of verse 12, I think Paul's going to give us a key to these things of not lagging in diligence and fervent in spirit. But before we get to that, he mentions a couple other things there in verse 12. He says, rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation. And so rejoicing is in the present verb tense here, which means it's to be an ongoing action, not something we once did, but was something we're continually doing. We're rejoicing in the Lord. And we're, what are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in the hope that we have. And what is our hope? Our hope is, is that Jesus is going to return for us as he promised, and that we're going to be with him for eternity. That's our hope. And so we're to rejoice in the hope that we have an eternal destiny with the Lord. That's, that's what we we're called to rejoice in. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so rejoicing in hope. And then patient in tribulation. Jesus told us we would face trials. And seeking to walk in our gift, like I mentioned a moment ago, will bring opposition, but we must be patient and don't give up because of the trial. To not shrink back, to avoid losing eagerness, to rejoice in hope, as he's told us to, to be patient in tribulation. We must do what he says at the end of verse 12. We must continue steadfastly in prayer. We have to be in prayer. Because it's in prayer where our eyes are put upon the Lord. And the Lord reminds us of the hope that we have. And the Lord stirs our heart to service towards for him because we're in his presence. And so I don't think verses 11 and 12, the things Paul is saying there are, po are possible apart from us continuing steadfastly in prayer. 
We have to be in prayer. We have to be seeking the Lord and allowing him to remind us of what is true. Um, that word continues steadfastly is a word that means to persist in something, busy oneself with, be busily engaged in, be devoted to. I think that's a pretty good thing to be doing with prayer, right? To be busy myself about it. Because if I busy myself with prayer, I'm going to be a lot less busy with worry about other things. And my life is going to be not lagging in diligence, and I'm going to be fervent in spirit because I'm in the presence of the Lord. And then that brings us to the last of the verses we're going to consider here tonight, verses 13 through 16. And a heart for others, I think, is what Paul's conveying. To be active in using our gift, we must have a heart soft towards others. And Paul, I think, encourages us to three things in these verses. In verse 13, he says, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And so Paul encourages us to have an open hand, be willing to meet the needs that arise. Uh, given means to run after, pursue. So we're being intentional about sharing what the Lord has given to us. And on this, I just want to say, and if you don't know tonight what your spiritual gift is, that's a good place to start, is just be, say, Lord, here I am. I have an open hand to, to meet the needs of others, and Lord, use me. And if, if we would start there, I think the Lord would very quickly show us, if we don't know, what our spiritual gift is is by having this heart ready with an open hand. In verse 14, I think he's telling us to have an open heart. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not, um, and do not curse. Not holding a grudge against those who hurt us, but instead blessing them. How? Pray for them and speak kindly in return. And I think there again, that's having an open heart, uh, even to those that are harsh and evil towards us. Um, and then in verse 16, he exhorts us to a humble heart. And kind of again, coming back to where we started, really, as we begin to consider this. It says, be of the same mind, is what he's telling us to do. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. You know, being of the same mind does not mean we have to agree on non-essential things. Being of the same mind, I think what he's speaking of here is having the mind that Christ had and Christ showed. And um, I don't have time to look at it here, but if you want to write down Philippians 2, 1 through 9, there Paul's exhortation to the Philippians was have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. And that was a mind that was willing to take on human flesh, to humble himself, and die, and as Paul says in that passage, to die even the death on a cross, to die the most humiliating way. And so Paul, I think here, is calling them and us to a mind, and that's the mind that Christ had, a mind that's not about me, it's not about my desires and my agendas and my name being lifted up, but instead it's about me being willing to just serve others and, and humbly let the Lord use our lives. And if we're doing this, having that same mind, there will be unity. 
And at the core of this is humility, of course. And that was what it was at the core of the mind of Christ. There was a humble mind, a humble heart to take on the form of a servant and to die as he did. And these things I think are important. If we're going to walk in our gifts, we have to have what Paul's saying here, open hand, an open heart, and a humble heart. And so, um, Wiersbe says this about gifts, um, and the worship team can go ahead and come on up. He says, spiritual gifts are tools to build with, not toys to play with, or weapons to fight with. And um, that reminded me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Here, Paul talking again in context about spiritual gifts and the growth of the church, he says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so Paul there is telling us of the importance of each one of us doing, supplying what every joint supplies to the body. And as each one of us do what God's calls, called us to do, as each one of us share our part, the result is growth of the body, and the body is edified. And so tonight as we wrap up here, I just have a few questions I just want to pose and, call, and ask us to, to think on is, you know, are we participating in the growth that God desires for us? And if, if we're not, then the Lord wants us to be a participant. He wants us to be a part of helping the body grow by walking in our gift. Do we see that it's reasonable to offer our lives in service to the Lord? Do we see that it's a reasonable thing? And this other is, do you know what your spiritual gift is? And, and I just want to exhort you, if you don't know what your spiritual gift or gifts are, you know, to come and let us pray for you tonight. We'd be glad to pray that God would reveal to you what they are. Maybe tonight, though, you know what your gift is, and you've shrunk back, and you're not using it. And I just want to encourage you is to step out, to stir up the gift again in your life and let the Lord use you. And we have a God who loves us so much. And part of the way in which he's expressed that love to us is to give us gifts to serve him, gifts to bring glory to him with. And so I want to encourage you to stir up the gift and let the Lord use you. And so if that's you, you know, come up. We would love to pray for you tonight and ask the Lord to help you to stir up that gift. But let's just pause here for a moment, bow our heads, and allow the Lord to speak to us, and then we'll close here with a song.